there's at least two, really maybe more, things that happen, events that take place in our text today that are the kind of thing that if it happened to you today on Sunday morning, I think you would just have a very different feeling about whether or not you liked your church. So, I don't know which is more, more interesting. Imagine you, you came in here today, and I was here with the Bible, a copy of the Bible, and then there was a cow, a couple of goats, some sheep, some birds, a bunch of animals. Right, what's going on? I read you from the Bible a few passages about Jesus, and I say, do you believe this? You say yes. I say, okay. So then I go over and I start killing the animals. Slit the throat of the cow. Got a bucket. Catching the blood in the bucket. I start taking that bucket of blood and I throw half of it on the altar. And I keep doing that. I'm painting up here with blood. Altars covered. Candles covered. Font covered. Pulp. Everything. Blood everywhere. You're like, what on earth? And then, I mean, you haven't gotten up and left yet because you're just stunned, right? He's, 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 he's off his rocker. We should at least watch. Yeah? Uh, then I take that blood and I take a hyssop branch, I mean, think like a big palm leaf, and I've wrapped it so that part of it's got wool on it to make it thicker to hold, but it's really flappy, and I take the bucket and that palm leaf, or a hyssop branch, and I dip it in, and I walk down the rows, and I throw the blood in your face. I mean, the only way is to really get up here, and I'm literally all the way along, blood all over you. I go through the whole place, I come back, I say, this is the blood of the new covenant. That is, this is the blood that binds you to the contract of what you just heard read from the Bible. Just, just that one right there. Would you come back next week? I, I don't know, right? I don't know. Well, try this one on then. Try it that we have a guest preacher. Some really well-known guy, maybe in Synod, maybe he's the preacher of the Lutheran Hour, maybe he's, he's just a professor somewhere, but he comes and he's our preacher. And so Gus and I, we do the other readings and whatnot, but he does the gospel reading. And pretend for a second we're one of those churches where the gospel reading and the sermon are just right in a row without a song. A lot of places do that. So he does the gospel reading, and he's getting ready to preach. He shuts the book, and he says, well, frankly, here it is. Uh, that was all about me, and I just did it. Amen. And he sits down. I'm not sure you'd pay him 150 bucks or whatever to be there that day after he did that, would you? And what if, imagine if it was Pastor Cypress for a moment. Poor man's not here, so it's not fair, but this was his hometown when Jesus did this. Pastor Cypress some of you, at least some of you used to, knew him when he was a boy, when he was a young man, right? So if he stood up among you and said, well, I'm actually the Messiah, you know, the anointed king, the final priest, all that stuff, and the world's coming, what would you think? I don't know that you'd try to throw him down a hill, necessarily, but you might take him to a hospital, wouldn't you? So both of those things are happening. Now, to, to put it one step higher, when Jesus is in Nazareth and he says this about what the prophet Isaiah had said, where is it now? Uh, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me. That's the word Christ, by the way. He has christened me to proclaim the gospel, the good news, and sent me to unleash the captives, to make the blind see, to send liberty to all, and then proclaim the year of the Lord's Favor. It says favor in English. The, the word is jubilee. 
Now that word jubilee is an Old Testament Levitical code calendar of temple worship word. It's a technical word. It's like saying Christmas. And you say, it's Christmas in July, but everybody knows that's just Christmas stuff in July. Christmas is a very specific thing. Well, the year of the Lord's Jubilee is a very specific thing. So kind of a long story, but it has to do with the settling of all debts, the freeing of people in prison. Everybody gets basically a start over card. It's every seven years. And then every 49, there's an even bigger one. So he says that he is here to be the forgiving favor jubilee year of unleashing that God has always promised, which is part of this covenant of blood that had been thrown on the people so long ago to swear to them that God was with them to bring through them the man who would save the world. So Jesus very much is doing the exact same thing as Moses and even claiming that that blood of the covenant thrown on those people and on that altar is now him. Here I am, I'm it. And we respond rather accordingly, of course, we want to sacrifice the sacrifice. But we don't do it for pious reasons. We do it for unbelief. He will use that to his glory. There's another piece in here that is also quite stunning, and I still can't wrap my mind around it. I've tried. I've said it other places, and I said it at the sermon this morning, and I still, I can't get my imagination to grasp this one. The closest I can get, and it's really not a good, it's not a good example, because first, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is an overused metaphor by young pastors. You maybe don't know this. I don't say it a lot, but it's just, it's a tired thing. But there's so many things in that series, Frodo and Gandalf and the Eye of Sauron. There's so many things there that do have Christian thematic influences. So it's, it's okay, but I hesitate to say it, but it's the best I can think of. There's a moment down in the darkness of Moria in these mines where there's this great demonic beast that's come up from the bottom. It's called a Balrog. He's kind of like an arch demon. He's fire and shadow is one, all this wicked stuff. He's terrifying. It's awful. He's chasing them. They're this little band. And Gandalf, who's this wizard, he makes a stand against the Balrog. It's a big moment in the first book. It's a big moment in the movies and all this. But the moment when Gandalf is there is this little man with a staff. And he's got his glowing staff. He's a man. And then there's this big fire shadow beast thing that's really there. This is not a dream. This is not the atheist flag, uh, flying spaghetti monster kind of thing, right? It's not all an imagination thing. It's not some god far away. It's this, like, near godlike thing right there in his face made of fire. Well, that's what the people of Israel were facing with this god, Yahweh, on the mountain, telling them what to do. And Moses comes down from this fire god, And he says, here's what to do. And they say, okay, we'll do it. And then he kills a bunch of animals and throws the blood on them. And this big fire god thing is still sitting there with promises now attached. And these are also quite something. Verse 22 of of chapter 23, it's the second verse on the page. If you carefully obey, always translated in your head as believe, always. Just put believe there. If you carefully believe his voice, and do all that I say, then I, this giant, powerful fire god who splits the Red Sea in half, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. 
Which is to say, when you go to war, you have the Balrog fighting for you, and it's something more because the Balrog's a little tiny joke of a thing in a book. This is the actual almighty God on earth as fire and cloud. Can you imagine what kind of confidence, if you were some pagan like Achilles, you would have at that moment? Knowing that you were the avatar of the Almighty God as you went to battle? Who could stand against you? It's more than that. He says, I will bless your bread and your water. Meaning, you're always going to have food. I will take away your sickness. Nobody's ever going to get sick. No miscarriages, no barrenness, plenty of children. Fulfill the number of your days, long lives. My terror will be all around you to throw every enemy against you into confusion. Your border will go from the Red Sea to the Philistine Sea, that's the Mediterranean, all the way to the Euphrates. You're going to own everything. Make no covenant with their gods, it says. Now, I want to get into that idea too, but, but, but just first. I still, I cannot find a way to imagine what it must be like to have a true God like right there that I can see, saying these kinds of things and then going and doing it with me. Much less can I imagine then not believing in him. I mean, that's even weirder, really. But just, just to have it there, maybe that's the problem, is that even with him right there, we just, how could you even fathom? This is so supernatural. It's so outside of reality. Maybe it's just a big cloud. I don't know. What do you think? We're kind of hungry. We had better meat in Egypt, right? We start to complain. I don't know. But it's, it's a magnificent moment to see this supernatural power that they are being given. They're like, a, they're like a, a band of heroes in some comic book, unassailable. This is what Joshua ends up being, right? Now, this does lead us to another interesting problem. We're going to find very quickly that all of these promises built into this blood covenant system are so that they will go into this land. And in this land, again, God's going to provide everything. He's got a, a mediation by blood system to keep them in his grace. And yet part of it means removing all of the lies and false teaching that are there. And the way he says to do this is not what we would call nice. As modern people, I think it's fair that we would struggle with this, in fact. I mean, again, imagine... If you can, you come to church and there's a giant burning fire God there, and then your pastor, who's speaking for him, says, well, what he says is this. We're supposed to go over to Pecatonica. Uh, go to Pecatonica. We're going to kill everybody there. Women, children, animals, all their stuff. We're going to burn it. Big fire. You can't keep nothing. It's holy. It's a holy fire to the Lord. We're going to crush Pecatonica. Don't worry if anyone else gets mad and is going to come and attack us. We'll crush them, too. God says so. So uh, here we go. I mean... It's not the modern approach to much, right? Uh, much of anything. Now, there's a piece or two that's kind of missing, though, because the people in Pecatonica are not the Canaanites. Let me just give you one tidbit about the Canaanites. We're going to get to the book of Judges in a little while. Uh, Lent's really a great time to be in Judges, honestly. But one of the stories I don't think we're going to cover directly is when they conquer a king, I believe his name is Eglon, can't remember, but I know what happens. They conquer this guy, and they're supposed to kill everybody. They don't, so it's, they do the wrong thing on two levels. But what they do is worse than killing him. What they do is they cut off his nose, his fingers, and his toes. And then they just let him be. 
And he says something quite strange in response. He says, this is justice. For I cut off the nose, fingers, and toes of 70 other kings and then made them sit beneath my table while I ate. So whatever we might think about Israel, just keep in mind these Canaanites were, were nasty. 70 men without fingers and toes beneath your king's table while he eats? It's filthy. It's wicked. This is to say nothing of the way that they sacrificed to their various gods. One of the most famous actions was to go, there's a statue, uh, and it's, it would be a, a, an animalish head, but a man's body standing with his hands out like this. And you would build a massive fire underneath the hands of the statue, so that over time, the statue's hands would glow molten hot. And then you would take a living infant, and you would just set the baby on top of those hands. And that was, that was Sunday morning worship. So again, it's not like when God says, wipe it out, because otherwise you might start doing it, God's got a bad idea here. And given the fact that they don't wipe it out, and then they do start doing it, and the, the murdering of their infants as worship does become part of what they do near the end, well, it's not like God didn't see it coming. So the real way to wrap our heads around this conquering of the land and how did they possibly kill all those people without God being so evil is to remember nobody here is good. They're alive at his mercy. We should all burn anyway. He's just burning the worst of the actions so that he can implant in that place a people covered with blood to hopefully, not hopefully, to truly get them to this point where Christ comes at the fullness of time. But in this, then, there's one more shadow we should see in this. One more way as Christians we can understand this. Because we are supposed to go and conquer Pecatonica and Byron and downtown Rockford and McChesney Park. We are supposed to go and be at war with this world. It's just a different kind of war. Back here, in the days of shadow, it involved iron and sword and shield and the shedding of human blood. That's because we're sinners. That's because it was dark times. But today, enlightened by the resurrection of Jesus, we can see that really, converting someone by the sword doesn't convert them at all. If you make someone bow down because they're going to die otherwise, they don't really believe anything you say. They're living out of fear. If you want them to truly join your cause, you must convert them with their mind and their heart. And that's its own kind of war. It's its own kind of weaponry, too. And so the New Testament definitely speaks about taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And using that sword, which is double-edged, cuts in both directions, to, conversation seasoned with salt, of course, attack the strongholds of this world. Paul speaks that way to the Galatians. The strongholds of the enemy, these are entrenched ideas that are lies. And they need to be attacked and torn down. We're busy building them these days in our country. We're adding to the strongholds. What we can take from this then, again, is, well, stimulation for the war. We do not have a promise that if we send us as soldiers to fight in some American war, we won't die. But we do have the promise that by taking the word of God out to war against the pagan minds around us, this present darkness, we can't lose. We can't die. 
Even should they throw us down a cliff, we're just going to rise again. And frankly, at this point in time, I'm not so sure we're going to get thrown down cliffs. I think people are hungry. They're hungry for us to come and bring a word that makes sense. A word of wisdom, a word of certainty, and a word of truth. The author of the Hebrews gives us some of these kinds of ideas as well. The last part of the text, maybe you picked up on it, maybe you didn't. He is directly referencing that moment of the blood being put on the book and then thrown on all the people. And he's doing it in order to say that any type of atonement or mediation, any type of getting to an angry good God when you're evil requires blood. The first covenant showed that, but it wasn't enough. And what he wants us to focus in on is not the Sinaitic covenant, but the new covenant. That's verse 15 as it starts. It says, he, that's Jesus, is a mediator of a new covenant, a different covenant. And this can take kind of two different forms, and they're both right for understanding the Bible. One of them is to understand the distinction between Sinai and Calvary, the cross, Jesus on the cross. Those are two different covenants. And that Sinai really comes to an end with the Babylonian captivity, the exile. But Sinai itself is only a reflection of the real old covenant. It's a different thing. The real old covenant of justice and death, punishment of death against sin, goes all the way back to Genesis. And it is Genesis chapter 1. It is the creation of the world as it exists in perfection, and with it then what we brought to that agreement with our sin. So everything God built us to be and the resulting curse that comes with us not wanting to be that. Genesis 3 gives us that curse, by the way. Four things summarizing every problem we have. Trouble between man and woman. Trouble between woman and her children, that is family in general. Trouble between man and the earth, the dirt with all the thorns and sweat and everything else. And finally, trouble with your own body as eventually it dies. That is the old covenant. Justice, pure justice. But Jesus comes to mediate a new covenant, a different thing entirely, another word from God. We Lutherans say gospel, right? The good news of salvation by grace as a gift through faith. That is, you just get to trust it. You don't have to do anything. He just says it's done. You trust it because it's true in Jesus' death and resurrection. The thing I want to give you as the, the tool, though, today, is that word mediator. Mediator. I know you know the sounds because we use these words all the time, words that are connected to this. Even the word middle, the middle, is related to this word. But you hear it more directly in things like the media. Yeah? Fox News, CNN, the media. That's not quite right to call them that. It's fine. It captures it. But they're called that because the word media is a way of describing any form of communication that is not immediate. So you hear the word there in immediate, right? Immediate. You think of that as being right now. But it also just means nothing between you and it. To have something immediately is to have nothing between you. To have something mediately is to have something between you. 
And so the media is between you and whatever message is coming your way. So radio is one form of media, or singular, a medium, because the radio is between you and the one talking on the other end, and it's getting it there. TV's another, internet's another. When you paint or do sculpture, you talk about mixed media, right? As different types of tools to communicate with. So then Jesus is the mediator, the, the communication tool, but more than that, a single tool, a male tool, tool, an individual tool, and then a man. So a mediator is a person that stands as a communication between two opposed parties. So if you ever go to court, you might enter into mediation, right? All those words are there. So who is Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the one who stands between you and this fire God, this shadow God, this creator almighty one in a new covenant? Where's that? A death took place as payment for the trespasses committed under the first covenant so that those who are called will receive the promised eternal inheritance. Verse 18, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So the new covenant in Jesus' blood, he says New Testament in the words of institution, is of course the supper, we'll get to that. But it is also then him, standing between the wrath of God and us on the cross. One of my favorite lines in, in hymnody, I, I guess I got a lot of them, but great hymn, I only pick it once a year usually, always on Good Friday, stricken, smitten and afflicted. See him dying on the tree. Oh, this is a gorgeous hymn. There's a verse in that hymn that talks about, I'm not going to get it by memory here, though. Um, it was the, I feel like it says pleasure, but it's the will. It was the will of God to crush him. It was the will of God to crush him. Sometimes I think we can look at Jesus on the cross and get the idea that God's kind of crying in heaven. It's so sad. Look what they did to my son. And look how bad we are. Look what we did to his son. But there's another side to this, which is that in heaven, God is frowning at Jesus. God is scowling in rage and hate at Jesus. And it is God's pleasure, really, to just pour his rage into Jesus. Because his rage against evil, don't miss this, this is rage against real evil. You get it too. When you see real evil, you get angry. So when God sees the real evil that we're blind to, because we're evil and like to cover it up, he sees it, he gets angry. He's enraged. He wants to destroy it. But he also has this eternal mercy thing going. And so it is his will to pour out that rage justly, but to miss you. And hit Jesus. And Jesus, mediator in between, stands between, catching it all in his flesh. And then when that flesh is dead, it's, I've used this image before, it's, it's too easy, but it's, it's right. It's kind of cheesy, I suppose. If you imagine that Jesus is a giant sponge, bear with me, a sponge that doesn't pick up water but picks up evil. And so what he does in his death is he just absorbs and picks up all the evils of ever into himself and then <gasps> dies. And that evil's inside him when he dies. And down it goes into the grave and it's gone. Because he comes back out again and dusting off, there's no evil left. Death swallowed it. It swallowed itself. Yeah? 
the mediator, the in-between one of a new and better covenant. We're going to be in Hebrews 9 and a little into 10 for the next couple of weeks. And it's going to be a lot about blood and a lot about the fulfilling of the covenant in blood. It'll be very difficult for me to not talk about the Lord's Supper every week as a result of that. Because at the end of the day, the Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of everything we've heard this morning. So Jesus says, I'm the Christ. I am here fulfilling all the scriptures. It's all about setting people free and giving the year of Jubilee, the freedom from everything. I'm here to do that. And then you have the shadow of old that he's fulfilling, which is the blood being taken from the mediation between God and man and being put directly onto you, physically onto you, so that God looks down and he sees you covered in blood. But this blood allows him to see you with love, not as you deserve, but as he desires ultimately. And then after, now, New Testament era complete in Jesus' death and resurrection, it's all happening here as that mediator, that jubilee, that blood comes out not to smash you in the face, but to enter into your mouth, join with you body and life, become one common union between you and the man who is God. And so now there's not even anything between you and God but this man, Jesus. That's the meal. It's why it's our heartbeat. It's why to live without it or to keep people from it who want it is wrong. It's why to give it to people who don't understand it is wrong also. Because that's our religion. I didn't prepare this next part, so tell me I'm wrong if I am. I got a book at seminary. I never read it. I wasn't supposed to buy it either. I just bought it. Uh, Young pastors are stupid like that. It was a book about all of the liturgy in our confessions, which again, that might sound like real nerd stuff there. But what intrigued me was the cover. Should learn from that one, shouldn't we? On the cover, it was a gold embossed thing, beautiful thing, way too expensive. But it said, and I'm not going to get the first words, but the, it was liturgy something, cultus dei. It's Latin, but you know both the words really. Dei, God. Agnes Dei, Lamb of God. Cultus Dei, cult of God. And what I learned, not by reading the book, but elsewhere, is that the early church would refer to the liturgy of the sacrament, the receiving of the sacrament, as being part of the cult of God. Now, that word cult's a pretty bad word in English, right? And really, what it it means when we use it, when we say, say that the Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult, we mean two things. We mean one thing, they're not really Christians, they're not Trinitarian, but there's something else that goes into it as well. What else, the other thing that goes into cults as we experience them in America is a certain level of mind control and emotional manipulation. Uh, there is not questioning really allowed. And if you do not follow the rules, you will be very quickly shunned. Not just told to leave. They won't tell you. They'll shun you. Okay, so there's a lot of, again, intentional brainwashing and emotional manipulation going on. Last thing we ever want as Christians is that. What we want is people with their minds awakened. We want people open, able to see their own questions and find the answers, able to combat both themselves and the world with what the scriptures authentically say, and able to acknowledge our imperfections that we might be saved. None of those things are going to be found in a cult. But what the old meaning of that word really meant, the reason why this is the liturgy of God, the cult of God, is because it's about a repeated ritualistic action that in fact is 
all that matters in your life. And that is what we are. That is what the supper is. It's not that the rest of your life doesn't matter. It's just, can I quote the 70s song, dust in the wind. But this is not dust in the wind. This is immortality in your mouth. And it's not to say go out and never play in the dust. By all means, use your hands in the dust. Do good things in the dust. Speak good words in the dust. Just know it's dust. And know that you're dust. But you're not only dust. You're also now made of heaven. Because the man of heaven who has broken the grave is one with you. He is here today, the day of the Lord's Jubilee again. The seventh day. The eighth day. To bind you to himself. Again, there are many more things buried in these marvelous texts, but that, I think that should suffice. The real God, right here, entering you with the power to never die, to believe it. In the name of Jesus, amen.